um, we gave him the pitch, and he said, um, "How much you boys looking for?" And we said, uh, "One and a half million dollars." And he goes, "I love your energy. You remind me of me when I was your age." And we were like, "Great, great." He goes, "Put me down for seven fifty. Talk to my man Jonathan. He can fin- he can uh, he can finish up with the details." And we were 28, 29 <laughs> years old at retail, and so the board have said, no, "We need them to have ten million, not one and a half million." I'm like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? You know, and it was dot com crash time. Nobody was going to give ten million dollars to a couple of guys with a laptop, and we were. It was a miracle we got as far as we yeah. did. Anyway, so we never took the money. Um, I lost twenty five grand. So did Jeremy. Shut the company down. What I was born to do was not work at Sky or Smith Klein Beecham or be an accountant or all the other stuff I'd done in my twenties. It was to it was to start a business because I just loved it. Uh, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took it on on my own um, in 2006 and raised some seed funding and 15 years later, here we are. You, how did you no, see it that? Was, it was, it, it lit the spark of entrepreneurship for me. Mm-hmm. But, but at the beginning of any journey, any startup, you need insane amounts of optimism and resilience and like, we're going to, today's going to be amazing. We're going to crush it today. And you have to believe that and feel it. And, and for some reason I do, if you don't dream, it won't happen. Right. Um, but you take one step at a time and you keep going and it's amazing how far you can go. You enjoy the journey in the process, then the outcome will take care of itself and it'll be probably bigger than you were expecting, but it's where the joy comes from. And actually, you know, selling the company and, and making some money that didn't give me, you know, the money gives me zero joy. Story, and I'm delighted to welcome Giles Palmer to the podcast. Yes, I'm terrific. Evening all. Mate, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Look, we're going to dive straight in. I want to know, talk to me. Uh, so after fa- founding Brownwatch 13 years ago, you s- sold like 15. 15. 15. 15, yeah. Mate, I've got to do my research better. And I've had a long day, mate. I've had a long Time's gone past, <laughs> right, yeah. But, um, you sold 450 million. I want to go back to the start of your entrepreneurial journey. Talk to me about some of the businesses you started prior to Brownwatch. I started two businesses before Brownwatch. Uh, I, before that, I came out of university. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I trained as an accountant. I hated that. I went into big companies. I hated that. I ended up at Sky and I was doing deals uh, when I was at Sky with small companies uh, to bring them onto the Sky Interactive platform. And uh, we were charging them crazy. Sky was charging them crazy amounts of money. But the fact that these small companies were getting these exclusive deals with Sky allowed them to uh, raise money at high valuations. And so that was the first, I was 28, 29, and I thought, hmm, I'm on the wrong side of this negotiation. I mean, it was obviously a win-win, but uh, they won bigger than, than we did. Um, so me and a friend of mine um, <clears throat> went to the uh, the the guy that was running Sky Interactive, 
which is now not like it was back then. This was the beginning of interactive TV and Sky were putting a lot of money into it and they were thinking that you would be doing your shopping through your TV and your banking through your TV. It's never really happened because now we've got smartphones and, uh, and so on. So, but, but back then, that this was their idea. Um, what they didn't have was a, uh, a retailer or a TV tailor or whatever who sold perfumes and cosmetics. So me and my friend Jeremy uh, quit Sky. Uh, we put in quite a lot of our own money actually back then, 25,000 pounds each. We went to the guy who was running the Sky business and said, will you give us a deal to sell perfumes and cosmetics through Sky TV? <laughs> and he said, yes. So uh, he said, get some good product and raise a million and a half dollars and I'll give you a deal. Um, so like I said, we put some money in, we, we hired some buyers, one, one from QVC and one from um, Liberty and uh, we hired a, a back-end engineer to build out the kind of the back of the store if you like and w if we had more time I'd tell you about some of the pitches that we did but um, uh, my friend Jeremy uh, who I was doing this with um, he, his, he was part of the sort of I don't know how better to describe this, it sounds wrong, but sort of the North London Jewish network, um, uh, if there is such a thing. Anyway, uh, you pull back the curtains on that group of people and there are some very interesting people there and very wealthy. Um, and so we, and they're all, a lot of them are, uh, are retailers, you know, they, they, I met one guy who, who uh, basically runs the world's biggest um, coat hanger company. They make 70% of the world's coat hangers, one company. Wow. Um, and, and I met another guy, this guy called Bob Gergen, who we pitched to. He, he was running this company. Um, he founded it and was a CEO, this company that was, that makes 80% of the world's candles. You know, they own wax lyrical and they, you know, pretty much four out of five candles that get burnt. This guy's made, this company is made. <laughs> Um, so we met these crazy people, um, met a guy called Clinton Silver, what a cool name that is. Uh, he was the, cool yeah, he, we hired him as the non-exec chairman, um, cause he was a sort of been there, done that ex MD of M and S. Um, so we met all these crazy people, pitched Bob Gergen at Claridge's, um, uh, and he, he, uh, we got, me and Jeremy got to Claridge's with a laptop for the demo of what we were building. And this guy goes, um, are you Giles and Jeremy? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mr. Gergen will be with you momentarily. Please take a seat over here. So we sat down in Claridge's and, you know, like in this hotel we'd never been to before. And this immaculately dressed 75-year-old man, Bob Gergen, kind of walked up to us in a double-breasted pinstripe suit with a little, little uh, <laughs> hanky sticking out of his um, pocket. And when he smiled... His, um, his eyes disappeared and he looked a bit like Kermit the Frog. Um, <laughs> he was utterly charming. Um, we gave him the pitch and he said, um, how much are you boys looking for? And we said, uh, one and a half million dollars. And he goes, I love your energy. You remind me of me when I was your age. And we were like, great, great. He goes, put me down for 750. Talk to my man, Jonathan. He can, fin he can, uh, he can finish up with the details. 
And we were 28, 29 <laughs> years old, and we'd just been introduced to the world's biggest candle maker, and he was saying that he was going to put $750,000 into our company. We were just <laughs> So we went straight to the pub, smoked two big cigars, and had a couple, uh, you know, drunk some pints, thought we were Rockefeller. Um, uh, <laughs> Love it. But the, the, that company was called Five Senses. Um, and what we created, what I realized in that period, that it was three months, it only lasted three months, because it was the end of 99. We raised the money on, in theory, we raised all of that one and a half million from basically Jeremy's connections. Um, uh, yeah, some crazy, there's more crazy <laughs> stories, but I haven't got time for those. But, um, uh, and we, we got some great product. I know, I know more about perfume cosmetics than I, than I really should. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you, Tweezer man are the tweezers to buy, just in case you want. <laughs> I still remember all this shit, and it was 20 years ago. Um, and, but I realized what we created, we had a little office just off Oxford Street. I was living in um, West London at the time. And the five of us, me, Jeremy, Helen, Kate, and Steve, we were just in there kind of making this shit up as we went along. And there was like, we were, we were loving it. It was just so, it was so energizing it was it didn't feel like work it just it was amazing and and then uh you know we went back to sky and said you know we've got the we've got the money we've got the product um and he goes uh, yeah unfortunately i've taken it to the sky board and they were like who are these people and i said well they're the guys that used to run our business development team um what do they know about retail uh, i said i didn't know that you th i thought that you didn't know that much about retail and so the board have said no, w we need them to have 10 million not one and a half million I'm like, are you kidding me? What are you talking <laughs> about? You know, and it was dot-com crash time. Nobody was going to give $10 million to a couple of guys with a laptop. And we were, it was a miracle we got as far as we yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we never took the money. Um, I lost 25 grand, so did Jeremy. Shut the company down. And, uh, and I realized that, you know, my heart wasn't in it. I didn't want to be a perfumes and cosmetics re, uh, yeah. TV seller. That was not me. Uh, yeah. It was a goal-hanging company. I was like, oh, look, there's a, there's a p possible winner there. I'm just going to you know, try and poke <laughs> it in the back of the net. And totally the wrong ethos to start a business. But I did, I did realize that um, what I was born to do was not work at Sky or Smith, Klein, Beecham or being an accountant or all the other stuff I'd done in my 20s. It was to, it was to start a business because I just loved it. Um, and that. so then me and Steve... Uh, we were talking about, okay, what are we going to do next? Um, and he was, uh, he was finishing his PhD at Sussex University. He said, I've got these two other mates who've just finished their PhDs. We want to build a technology company that, that implements open source software because we all believe in the future of, the, of software being open source. This was before the cloud, really. Um, uh, uh, but we don't, we don't know anything about finance or selling. Do you want to come along and basically be the, you know, run the finance and the sales front of house, and we'll we'll be we'll be the engineers. And and I said, yeah, I do, I do want to do that. <laughs> um, so we put in five. They all lived in Brighton. Uh, I'd never been to Brighton, um, so we all put in five grand um, on the first of April, two thousand, April Fool's Day. <laughs> I got the train down to Brighton to meet my new business partners. I'd never met these two guys before. Um, <laughs> I like Steve, uh, so I had some uh, hope that he had a good judge of character. Turns out the other two were absolutely wonderful human beings. Anyway, or still are. And I got off the train behind two very uh, lovely young Italian women 
one of whom turned to the other, and as they were getting off the train, he went, ah, perfumi di mare, uh, the smell of the sea, uh, <laughs> which sounds better in Italian, right? <laughs> anyway, so, so that was my first introduction to Brighton, <laughs> an Italian woman talking about the smell of the sea, walking down to the old Steen, where we got a little office with no windows on the old Steen, and I met Ollie and Guillaume, who were these two uh, computer scientists, and, and the four of us started the... Um, exotically named Runtime Collective Limited. Um, and to this day, Brandwatch is still Runtime Collective Limited. Um, really? So we spent five years um, building open source software and in, uh, implementing it, extending it, doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, I was doing some coding back then, but it was, you know, I was rubbish. Well, I mean, I, I did some at university. I did a physics degree, but I was just not a professional software developer. <laughs> so I stuck to finance and sales and customers, uh, customer management. Um, and we built a whole bunch of different stuff and we made so many mistakes, uh, but we learned, we learned what not to do when you're building software. So we spent five years basically training to build software and also realizing that, you know, what, what does reuse mean when you're thinking about actually putting the, the your platform together and so much stuff, so much stuff. Um, one of the founders, Guillaume, uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever met, you know, used to work at the European Space Agency, he was genuinely a rocket scientist, spoke seven languages or something. Oh. He was like, I'm not cut out for this commercial stuff. So after about a year, he, he went back into academia. Um, Ollie um, had a bit of a screw up with one project, felt, felt a bit guilty, and, and, and he said, you know, it costs us quite a lot of money. So he, he, he decided to sort of leave but we're, we we had a reunion earlier this year the four of us it was Oy. wonderful we went to um a, a restaurant in brighton it was just amazing um and me and steve carried it on for five years till end of 2005 uh, early 2006 and I, I, at which point i was like we were bored like we were we were doing software for local authorities it was kind of dull um we were doing about three million a year. We didn't own the code base. It was all open source. I never really got my head around the open source business model because I'm like, if we create the best thing in the world, then everybody else is going to use it and install it. Yeah, and and yeah, we've sure. taken the cost, but we don't get the benefit. So anyway, uh, we were dreamers. Like at the, at the beginning, the first year, you can think about it, the name runtime. The first year we were all paid the same. We, everybody got paid the same. And then one of the engineers came up to me at one point and said, my customers are really successful and really profitable and that chip over there is asleep half the time and his customers are, are, are you know never make any money why are we paid the same and you know it's, it was it was animal farm i mean genuinely <laughs> it was like all animals are equal but some are more equal than others and we went through the animal farming uh, you know yeah. uh, journey with runtime collective um and then I just, I want to build a product company. So in 2006, I had the idea for Brownwatch and we'd already built a web crawler, um, or at least the, the bones of a web crawler. So we took that and, and turned that into, Steve wanted to go and um, uh, join Google and, and work in their strategy team. And he almost did actually, he joined Google, he ended up at DeepMind and now he's a VC. I mean, he's another g brilliant human being, a lot like Guillaume and Ollie. Um, and, and so I took it on on my own in 2006. So I had some sort of co-founders, but then I sort of founded the Brownwatch thing out of Runtime Collective, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and I took it on on my own um, in 2006 and raised some seed funding. And 15 years later, here we are. Wow. Wow. Oh, mate, I'm really keen to just tap into the 
the, the, the first business with, with with the perfumes. And like you said, you, you'd say it quite blasé, like lost 25,000. Yeah, it's and, painful and, as hell. And, and, but like you said, at 28, 29, that first sort of step into entrepreneurship, I guess in that sense, and you go, lost 25,000 pound. But what actually that made you think was, I'm gonna go and start another business, I'm gonna go and yeah, I'm not going to put 25 grand in again. No, no, um, no. I had a really supportive wife at the time. She was she was doing, she'd started a wash bag business when I was a jobbing accountant, and I supported her at the beginning of that. And she was making it was it was getting you know decently successful. Mm. So 25,000 pounds was a number for us for sure, but mm. um, it wasn't like it didn't kill us. Um, but yeah, there were some pretty tough words said to her by <laughs> her to me um, about that. You know, you fucking idiot, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I wasn't going to put another twenty-five grand in in such a speculative way. But, but just from from your mindset point of view, like, because how, how do you view that? Do you view that as a uh, as a failure? What what did you? How did you? No, see it that? was it was it it lit the spark of entrepreneurship for me. Mm. I realised <clears throat> there was one other time back in about. Uh, when I was about 24, and I, I, I left the accountancy firm, and I, uh, well, I went on to comment to Lloyds of London, and, and I, they gave me quite a big job for a 24-year-old. I was running a team of, to start with two, and then it went up to eight people. Mm. And some of the people in that team were like, uh, it was the best team in, in, in that whole, there were about 150 people in this, in this project that was mm. uh, happening at Lloyds, and my team of eight was the most productive, happiest team. And um, a couple of the people on the team were like, you know, wherever you, whatever you do next, we want to come and work with you. And I don't say that to be arrogant. I just say that because I realized then and then when we did Five Senses that what I like doing is taking, working with a gr group of people and, and making something, doing something, taking responsibility and then making it happen. And one of the things that I've got I don't know where it comes from, but I have the ability to, to kind of not get too worried about stuff. So I, I guess I'm thick-skinned, or I don't know what it is, but, but at the beginning of any journey, any startup, you need insane amounts of optimism and resilience. And like, we're gonna, today's gonna be amazing, we're gonna crush it today. And you have to believe that and feel it. And, and for some reason I do. Um, so my p partner says that, you know, it, it annoys her that when I get out of bed in the morning, sometimes I'm like, today's gonna be an amazing day. She's like, oh, for God's sake, will you just like <laughs> calm the hell down and get, and get me a cup of tea? Um, so that energy of like, the uh, energy of possibility maybe, um, is so you said about being, you, you alluded to it a bit earlier, Sam, about being dreamers. You yeah, dreamers. I mean, I love it. I lo and, and then... Because <coughs> you've got to have a dream. You've got to build a business, to yeah. have a vision for something of this magnitude that you've built with Brandwatch. To have a vision if you for don't dream, it won't happen, right? Everything that is, exists in the world that has been touched by, you know, human beings has started as a thought, right? So, you know, yeah, it all starts up here and then how does it then become manifest in reality? I don't know, some form of weird voodoo <laughs> magic, but it's the best thing in the world, isn't it? When you imagine something and then you do it, and it can be something as small as getting fit 
or changing some habits, or it can be something as big as starting a business and making an impact on hundreds of people's lives. Now, you don't think that. I didn't think that at the beginning. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to start a business. And uh, I never, ever thought that it would get to where it got to. Um, but you take one step at a time, and you keep going, and it's amazing how far you can go. Love that. And I think that's it, that uh, everyone you talk to, and ma many podcasts I've done and spoke to people, and podcasts I listen to, but here's his toes. It's, it's not going, I'm going to climb Everest. No, I've got to get to the top of that mountain. It's right, I'm going to climb Everest, but I've got to go. You get depressed. I would get depressed because yeah. you're constantly looking up and thinking, yeah. God, I'm nowhere near it. You know? Yeah, just um, in small steps, isn't it? Small step, everything that, you do. Small that hacking your uh, positivity or, or tapping into that sense of small achievements. Mm. That's why the journey is more important than the destination in anything. You've got to actually enjoy the journey, the process. If you enjoy the journey and the process, then the outcome will take care of itself and it'll be probably bigger than you were expecting. But it doesn't really matter. If it is great, if it isn't great, it doesn't matter. It's actually the process is where the joy comes from. And actually, I'm, you know, selling the company and, and making some money, that didn't give me, you know, the money gives me zero joy um, or very, not very much. You well, kind of think you it will. Never, never money motivated when you started out? Was you um, it became less of an issue over time. I was super money motivated when I was paid 35 grand a year and I had child maintenance of 700 quid a month and I couldn't even you know, afford to live in much of a, a place that I could actually bring my kids to. <laughs> that was, at that point, I was very money motivated. Yeah. Um, but then as the company got more successful and I got paid more, um, uh, it became less of an issue. Uh, and so your, my motivation uh, to, uh, to, to, to earn more you decrease at that point, really. Um, the thing that motivated me a lot all the way through was this, obviously trying to enjoy the journey, but also this constant sense of failure and fucking up. Because every year, no matter what, something dramatic went wrong. Uh, you know, and there were so many t times with senior team members that I just, you know, I had. I wasn't really clicking with one or two senior team members, pretty much all the way through, different people. But if you've got a senior team of like, whatever, at one point I had 12 people, way too many. But let's say you've got seven. There's probably something going on in the team that's not working well. Maybe it's you and with you and one of the people, maybe it's with somebody else on the team. That team is not functioning like absolutely uh, uh, perfect output. And if there's no conflict and, and everything's harmonious, that's probably not great output either. So there is almost no like really great operating sort of temperature, pressure, whatever for, for, for a team of people. It's really, I find it really, really hard and really fascinating running teams. Um, so I was constantly thinking, oh God, why am I, why can't I get on with this person? Or why won't they do what I want them to do? Or why can't I hear what they're saying? Or, and there was always some shit going on somewhere. And so you're firefighting the whole time. You're, you never feel like you're winning. Like, you know, the, the, that's not part of the gig, but you've got to be comfortable with, with if you, once you get comfortable with that and don't lose motivation, don't lose your work ethic, then it's okay. Because even, even with them challenges and them times where you're going, oh, I'm not clicking with that person, not clicking with that, but then, like you said, alluding to the fact that they're just challenges on the way. So you still, as long as 
you check in with yourself that you're still enjoying that journey at some point. I'm sure there's points. Yeah, where yeah. And, and I wasn't empathetic enough a lot of the time. I wasn't thinking what's going on for them. You know, I didn't put myself in their shoes anywhere near as much as I should have done. Mm. I can give excuses like, oh, yeah, well, my job was hard and I was learning how to do it. And, yeah, there's definitely some truth there. But, you know, and there was lots of decisions that we made early on that, were not good decisions and we would and you know that the reverberations of those decisions played out down the years there's mm. so much stuff that um but all of that looking at it one way you see okay those were mistakes that was a painful look at it another way amazing learning opportunities amazing um, amazing that your business and the people around you and your customers and and so on are helping if you can just hear it if you can just open yourself up to it they can they're telling you what you need to do to be, to become better to become better at your job to become a better person to become just better and yeah. and 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 that's great you know yeah yeah i'm getting to <coughs> like growing a company to the magnitude like, for over 15 years going to 500 staff talk to me about about the culture with it at, at brand watch how do you especially across different offices how do you create a because uh, uh, culture is the bloodline of a business and if you've got to get a strong culture how did how did you create that um the culture of Brandwatch was set at the beginning of runtime collective like really and 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 it it you could i mean it's very different company and uh and you know pretty much all the people are different but the ethos that we had about basically looking after each other and being respectful to each other and being transparent with each other um and trying to do your best and improve and make good honest fact-based decisions that that persisted throughout and e even i remember one of our engineers tim owen saying to me when we took the m first vc money well that's it's gonna it's gonna change this place isn't it it's gonna you know now we got these sort of VCs coming in, they're probably going to be money guys and they're going to change this place. And, you know, but it was fun while it lasted, yada, yada. And I was like, well, I, as long as I'm still doing my job, I, hope that, I, I don't think it's going to change too much. And it, and it didn't. Um, the way, the two points so two, on exporting culture and creating it in different, because we had like nine offices towards the end. Mm -hmm. The New York office was set up by one of our staff, Seb Hempstead. Now he's different to me. He's more salesy than me, um, which is not a bad thing. It's just all good. It's, it's just a different flavor, yeah. right? Um, he worked incredibly hard and did an amazing job setting up the New York office, but it had a little bit more of an edge to it, but it was still quite similar, very similar to the Brownwatch HQ culture. Um, I hired somebody to set up our Berlin office and that office never felt maybe it does now but for many years it felt at odds with the rest of the company it it was like putting two north magnet poles together there was some yeah. funny weird something in the berlin office that was just a complete nightmare like we did employee net promoter score things every quarter and every pretty much it was like mid 30s uh mps throughout the whole company Berlin minus 10 and it was like what the fuck is going on and then plus 20 and then minus 10 it's like it's nuts this place what's going on <laughs> and then Stuttgart which was set up by another brand watch guy there was an engineering office relentlessly plus 40 for every every quarter for, for every year 
it was it's so weird how some and I still don't know why other than we didn't send somebody from HQ who had a lot of our values who shared a lot of our values and knew what it felt like to create and not you know to be in, in a brand watch office we didn't send somebody to set it up we got a, a German guy to set up and it just didn't work let's try it it's it's, it's like I, I find like from a, from a culture point of view like I always I generally talk about it a lot because I, again I always allude to, to my, the salon I closed down because I've got a culture wrong so it's always a fascinating thing to go from but what's interesting is knowing that the core values I guess that you started from like you said from Runtime Collective that was the that would be the culture definitely scales but the more complexity you bring into a business the 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 harder it is I think um, and and one of the things that happens that I don't think gets talked about very much, but I think it's absolutely critical as you go from like zero or like a couple of people to like 500 or, or thousand or more is boundaries and accountabilities. Yeah. You can't run a 500 person company anywhere, anywhere like the way you run a 10 person yeah, company. You're 10 person, you're all in it together. You're in one place. The boundaries are as blurry as hell. You go for drinks together afterwards. The accountabilities are fluffy. Um, you're just doing whatever it takes to get it done, you know, and, and anybody will sweep the floor kind of idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, the idea that anybody will sweep the floor when you're 500 person people is still good, but you need boundaries and accountabilities and who's responsible for what because there's dependencies all over the place and building those boundaries into an organization and holding people to account not in a brutal way but in a completely professional way is a learnt behavior uh yeah. certainly was for me uh <laughs> and also where uh and it was only when we got acquired and i watched p people who are really good at that i realized how shit i was at it actually <laughs> Um, I was like, God, these, the CEO and the CFO of Cision are really good at uh, accountabilities and, 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 and being clear and holding their execs to account, but they're doing it in a, in a professional way, supportive way, but very clear. Um, and I was like, God, I wish I'd, I wish I'd seen that a few years ago because I was just so, super fluffy on that stuff, really. <laughs> but, uh, but still built an amazing company, this amazing things to get so that's part of that like you said part of that journey and that learning curve yeah for you i guess i mean i was there throughout but it wasn't just me that built it clearly yeah, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, yeah, uh, so uh i i'll take a 500th of the credit for the last year <laughs> you know what i mean um it's it's a group it's a team it's a team game yeah no absolutely well, talk talk to me about that like i say growing them growing that company to that magnitude again over 15 year period what talk to me about the challenges what challenges in that and i guess raising money as well like from the start you almost got and then going into vc as well that brings its own challenges i'm assuming well the first vc round we did was in 2012 so i was pitching it, uh february 2012 so i was pitching from about october 11. um I didn't know anything about raising VC money apart from Bob Gergen. Uh, nobody, <laughs> I never had raised money from anybody ever. And Bob was a pushover, it turns out. Um, uh, um, you know, I got the VC handbook, which is like this for a list of VCs. 
and I started thinking, you know, where do I start here? Um, I started calling around, getting in touch with a few. Actually, the, uh, the, the angel funding was the most, uh, there was, so, so I'll come back to the VCs. We'd already raised a, a million pounds in, in two seed rounds. Because what we had to build with this m massive infrastructure to process all this data that we were collecting was very expensive. We couldn't do it off, you know, uh, w without raising quite a lot of money. So I filled out a form for Oxford Business Angels uh, pitch day. So I f filled out the form with the idea of Brandwatch. We, we hadn't even created an MVP at this point. I had some sketches and an idea and um, uh, we'd started building it. Um, we had the search engine. We had half of it probably. Anyway, um, I filled out this form and this bloke, Jason, called me up and said, uh, okay, and w but we did have some, uh, a bit of annuity revenue from our old customers from mm -hmm. the runtime collective day. So it was a little bit of a sort of pivot, you know, pivot moment in the company's history. So, uh, but I could see we were going to need money. Anyway, so I wrote, I filled out this form. This bloke called Jason Ball from London Sea Capital called me up and said, yeah, I'm going to invite you to a pitch day. So I had to go on a one day course to, to learn how to pitch effectively to this group. And it was a room a bit like this with about 80, you know, I, as, as far as I'm aware, high net worth individuals, yeah. business angels. And me and Fabrice Rakowski, who's a CTO, basically pitched Brownwatch to them. And at least 10 of them were asleep during <laughs> my pitch. Uh, I noticed none of you are, which is a massive upgrade <laughs> on that audience. So thank you very much. Good, good work. Um, so we were one of seven companies that pitched. We had like 15 minutes. And then after the pitch, just like this, you had a little booth and people would come up and, and uh, talk to you about your company. Uh, and then whatever we raised from those angels, London Sea Capital, which was a government-backed um, government fund, would, would, would match. So um, uh, the guys uh, who started Spannerworks and sold it to um, iCrossing, Arjo, Ghosh, yeah, Ray yeah, Richards, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Anthony Mayfield, and Dean Harvey, and Neil Han, Jaya, I can't remember, Jaya Singer, I think is his name. Um, they collectively, uh, I knew them, the Brighton guys, yeah, and they, yeah. were like, they, were, they were into the idea of Bradwatch. You know, I discussed it with them. Uh, they'd made some money from their sales. So basically they put in about 100 grand between them. I got another uh, 150 from the angel pitches and then London Sea Capital put in 250,000. So we had 500,000 Sea Capital from that mm -hmm. first angel pitch. And then I raised another C round Basically, some of those guys followed on, and then a, 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 a wealthy friend of mine put in a, a quarter of a million pounds. Um, and so we raised that money from individuals. Yeah. But it didn't feel like, you know, those people weren't really, well, the, 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 my friend who put in 250, he was like our non-exec chairman. He was like my mentor, and he, he was super helpful. But the rest of them were like just silent investors. They, they all made 30 times their money, which is really good news. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, but it took a while. Uh, anyway, so the first time we went to VCs, it was a different sort of thing. These are professional investors. They represent funds. It's a, it's a, it's a different process. Um, so I just, I learned slowly, but I just, I kind of got into that process. It helped being an accountant because yeah, I could sure. be, I could be fluent on the numbers. 
Um, uh, and and I guess that's what they, like from a VC, is that what, what mainly what they focus on? That and the storytelling, the credibility and the team and the yeah. traction. Yeah, but yeah. 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 If you've got, if you're a decent storyteller and you've got good numbers, you'll be fine. Yeah. Fair play. Fair play. I want to, I want to talk about, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see your mindset around, so, because most entrepreneurial dream, I guess, is to build, start an idea, build a business, get it to a valuation, you sell it for $450 million. Yeah. I call it a pony corn. <laughs> a a unicorn. A half a unicorn, <laughs> pony corn. It's cuter than a unicorn. <laughs> what, what, like, do you get to that point? Like, what, where, where's your mindset at last year when you sold it? That is it a euphoric moment? Do you, are you like, wow? It, it was, it was, um, there's a couple of things. The reason why we sold, uh, well, we had some inbound inquiries. That's the third time it had happened in the life of the company. And, um, and I'd done 15 years. I was like, it, it starts to get, one of the reasons why we did some mad stuff, like acquired our biggest competitor and, integrated technologies because it's it does get a, you know i found i one that i i get bored reasonably <clears throat> too quickly and so i we used to throw in risks and new stuff to do because it was more it, it kept it interesting right yeah. um but the market that we were operating in was probably only a billion dollars and so we were already over 10 percent of the market so the the f the, the big growth was was going to tail off, right? We were not going to continue to be able to continue to grow super quickly uh, unless we made some other strategic sort of changes. So it felt like we probably needed to be part of a bigger software company. And that's like, you just look at software and what happens is that they, you know, just roll up, roll up, bigger, 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 bigger. You know, you don't get software companies getting smaller and being successful. It's very weird. Um, anyway, uh, I kind of thought, okay, at some point we've got to sell the company. Plus, we had investors. Yeah. And investors at some point want their money back, right? Yeah, Times yeah, sure. a big number if possible. So exit planning was definitely a thing. Uh, it was definitely something that we were thinking about. Um, and then it was like, this: these inbound inquiries came. It was like, okay, let's run a process. I put a target of 450 million on it. And actually, the... It was 80, and we got that 80% cash, 20% stock. And I think the stock that we got incision is going to, you know, hopefully make a good return. So hopefully it'll be more than that. But, but we put that target on it. And for me as the founder, um, it felt like, it felt like I've written the last chapter of that particular book. And so it just was like, hmm, that's good. That's good. But no, no not much more than that. I mean, we did celebrate, obviously. <laughs> um, but it it was more of a feeling of like I'm glad we got to write the last chapter. Amazing, and that, what a great way to I guess to end to get to that point where you go because we want to build something, but to actually be okay with that. I've I've written the final chapter. I can close the book on that. I guess and look for whatever it is that 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 next journey or that next chapter for you i guess yeah. it, which is come i'm keen to what what is what does the future hold what, what i don't know um uh i'm i'm actually uh interviewing for a couple of ceo jobs at the moment and and if the, if the, if they're jobs that i think are really interesting and and fun and they want to give them you know they, they they think i'm good for it then maybe that 
I, and I was actually speaking to a guy today about on, on one of them, and um, I said, uh, I'm reminded of when Steve Redgrave got out of, uh, was interviewed after one of the Olympics, um, and, they, and they <coughs> the commentator was like, how are you feeling? You've just won a gold medal. Hey. And he said, uh, don't ever let me get in this fucking boat ever again. <laughs> um, but a year later, he was back training and he did another Olympic. So yeah. I've kind of, that's kind of, that's the mindset that I've sort of found myself in, which is that I've done my 10,000 hours. I'm now, I feel like I'm better at it than I, than, than I was like 10 years ago. And, and I want to, I want to win another race sort of thing. I mean, it's not quite as, as simple as that, but I feel, so I'm exploring some of that stuff. <laughs> I've got three or four non-exec things that I'm working on, young founders in particular who've who are like f five to ten million, and are looking to you know grow. Yeah. And often with software businesses, SaaS businesses in particular, which is what Brownwatch is, on a commercial basis. Well, actually, from a business, the CEO, the C, the the qualities of the CEO definitely show up in the business. I've <laughs> seen I've seen this with the ones I'm working with. And so there's a couple where the products are really good, but they're not really good at selling because the CEOs are a little bit academic, or they're or they're not they're not they're not salespeople. Yeah, and then yeah, I'm sure. working with another one, and the CEOs are a magnificent salesperson, like all about selling, yeah. but there's just carnage, in, or not so much carnage, yeah. but there's a lot of stuff that has not been taken care of um, in terms of the product and the onboarding and all yeah, sorts sure. of other stuff. So my job with these guys is to try and help them up their game in the bits in the areas that they're weak because as a CEO you have to be somewhat of a generalist right you, you, yeah, if you're sure. really weak in one area it's a bit of a problem yeah. so I'm doing and I'm when I started doing that like sort of mentoring non-exec stuff I started about 18 months ago um, just after we sold actually in March uh, March last year and um, I wasn't very good because I was I was used to having responsibility and accountability yeah. and it's like Right, you just need to do this. I'm like, no, no, stop telling him what to do. You know, you know <laughs> explore it. So now I'd give myself a seven out of ten on on that stuff, but I was probably a four when I started. Wow, amazing! Well, look, mate, what a fascinating journey, and and thank you so much for sharing it with us. And um, I just unbelievable to think of. I think it, it, as as someone as you know in the start of a, my journey, I guess, of run different businesses, some work not, and I'm in that start, but just to speak. Me too, to, me too. <laughs> and, and the, the things we learn from that, I think for me, the, the great thing about one of the things that many people know how much I love the podcast and sitting and speaking to inspirational people like yourself and obviously Rachel coming earlier and just, I, believe, I truly believe everyone's got a story to tell and whatever part of that journey you're on, we're always there. But to listen to someone that started something, built it 15 years later, sold it for that amazing amount of, of money. But just, but listen to you talk, it seems like you've enjoyed the journey. And I think that's... Mostly, mostly. mostly. <laughs> and, and also, um, I look back at it and there aren't that many things that I feel ashamed of. Like I, and I just think about my behavior or something I did and, and think, oh, God, I wish I could. That's really yeah. embarrassing. There's not that many of those. Um, and that is a relief, actually, uh, because I can talk about it freely. And yeah. yeah, there are some people that I would have pissed off along the way and vice versa. But m mostly I've just got lots of lifelong friends and lots of lots of just joyful and 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 hard memories as it were you know we went through some hard stuff together 
and and you it's you build such a strong bond with the people that you go through yeah, that yeah, with yeah. and it's a massive privilege yeah amazing well look we're gonna we're gonna wrap up with um our quick fire questions that i've been pinging at everyone today so f first one one piece of advice would you give to your 18 year old self move to silicon valley <laughs> back then back i mean uh, <laughs> you know i mean i was 18 in in 1987 um uh what a great time to move to san francisco <laughs> yeah. you know um so yeah okay um who has been the biggest inspiration throughout your life and why Ooh. i think uh i don't know um i think lots of different people in different ways i don't have a single sort of role model or i mean my dad was a massive influence on me obviously and my mom but um my dad in particular um he died in 2008 so he hasn't been around for it he sat he died before we got brown watch started to yeah. get get going it's a real sadness because um i remember um one of his mates came up to me the other day about a year ago and uh he goes um you know amazing amazing Charles, amazing work you know well done mate and uh I said, thanks, Jim. He goes, um, yeah, because your dad never really thought you'd amount to much. <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, uh, he goes, yeah, I remember him saying to me, I'm a bit worried about Giles. He's a nice guy, but I don't think he's really got <laughs> much lead in his pencil. I'm not worried about him. <laughs> and and, and uh, that, that, I think at 18, 19, that is uh, totally fair enough, actually. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I went... Uh, looking there now to go he's, some done he's done a what yeah 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 did all right in the end dad there we <laughs> go brilliant um could you recommend a book or podcast to well, to set an impact I, on you i read this question earlier on so and again i don't have one but if i, I like listening to uh business books i like reading yes. fiction and listening to business books so if i look at my audible thing uh i'm listening to how the world really works right now which is quite good the advantage by Patrick Lencini, I've told I've told Alex about this, mm. is, is it's just come up here. Um, it's a really good book for startups who are going to who are maturing into being scale ups and want to figure out how to implement strategy. Um, uh, there are other good strategic frameworks, but but I used to get asked from about 2008 to 2010, what's our strategy? Pretty much every month, I'm like, well, I've told you what it is. Why? why <laughs> which, what bits don't you understand? And it wasn't until I realized that actually a strategy is a lot more than just saying, okay, this is where we're going. It's actually how you're going to get there, how you're going to succeed. And you really need a good framework because uh, you don't need want to invent that shit yourself. There's no yeah. point. So, so that one was good. Um, uh, I read a book called Ishmael the other day, which is amazing. Uh, it's, about, um, it's about a gorilla talking to a, a chap, uh, a guy. And that's about um, sustainability. Super interesting. Build It is a really good book by Glenn Elliott, uh, who, who started Reward Gateway about culture, building culture and rewarding people and recognizing people. And I'll just give you one more. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, Midlife and the Great Unknown. There we go. That's a bit more <laughs> philosophical. Love David that. White, super interesting book. Amazing. Thank you. And look, finally, what is your one rule? living a fulfilled life um it's just the golden rule really just uh treat other people how you want to be treated 
uh, I have one for me um, specifically, uh, which is try to be more thoughtful. I'm not naturally a very thoughtful person. I'm good at some things, but, but my partner is incredibly thoughtful and it, I frustrate her that I'm not as thoughtful as her. And so, but it's like, I'm good at maths and she's shit at maths. So it's hard work for her to do maths. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, so when, when you- We've when, all got our strengths. Yeah. Turn that thought, maths, me, thoughtful <laughs> you. It's hard for me to be as thoughtful as you. You're just better at it than me. I'm trying. So, I need to, so that's one thing that I constantly try and work on. Amazing. Mate, listen, thank you so much for your time and coming on. What a, like I said, what a brilliant story. And um, I think that deserves a round of applause. Thank, thank you, sir. Uh, just quickly, have we got any questions in the room? Rachel. Go for it. Go for it. Please. Is that yourself? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do it. Okay. Um, so you uh, you can coach and get people in who can show you what good uh, good um, uh, accountability meetings look like. Uh, you can ask people if they want to go to become they want to uh, mature and and develop in that way. Um, and if they don't, and you can't repurpose them in the organization, you're doing them a favor because the company's only going one way, right? The, the, the organization is growing. It's only going to go one way. If the Ah, well, then that's easy. Ah, okay. Well, the, but again, that's that, that not doing their job and not being accountable is slightly different, okay? That's a, um, uh, a capability or a... Um, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm searching for the right word, but it's a capability issue, not an accountability issue. They're not up to the scale of the role that they're in right now. So, uh, and that's, and they will know this, right? They will know that they are failing uh, and, and they're stressed, they're finding it very stressful and they're working harder and harder and harder. The analogy that I use, and we had it the whole time, I had it with myself and I had it with other people, that a lot, some of the time you're on the wave and you're surfing and it's all good and you can do some tricks. Other time the wave is going a little bit too fast and you're really struggling to keep up with it. And at, at that point you've got to upgrade yourself and that takes a shit ton of work. And if you can do that, then great, you can get back on the wave. If not, then you've got to allow the next person who's going to be better at surfing that wave to get on it and do the job for your own sake and for the company's sake. And, that, and I, get, I think that's where non-execs and, 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 and advisors can come in and be helpful, actually. No, it's not. No, no, it's not ruthless at all. No, it's not. It re it's actually the opposite of ruthless. It's incredibly compassionate. Because if you don't do that, their life is going to become more and more miserable. It is actually a very compassionate act. What's your second question? <laughs> 
Y- yes. I mean, visualization means different things to different people. We, we, we visualized in numbers. I visualized in what the product would actually look like. I've, we visualized what does a customer, uh, you know, what does a good customer interaction look like? What does great, um, uh, what does great employee engagement look like? So there are lots of, de- there, there's some detail around what visualization means in those specific areas. But for sure, we took everything that was important and we, and we and we planned it and part of planning is to kind of like okay where are we going how is this going to look like i am a visual person and i like sketching things out so i love to sketch out what the product was how it was going to look and what we were going to build i you know i used i found that a lot of fun and and it also helped me explain and work with the product team and the engineers i'm like okay this is this is what we want that's what i want um over time i did less of that because you've got ahead of product and if you do that they're like will you fuck off out of my department please um which is completely fair enough and that's another thing with accountabilities actually and boundaries if if you don't if you have to stop doing stuff as well uh otherwise it gets blurry and you can't hold somebody else to account if you're doing not just the work but the thinking and the planning for them so there's a lot in there there's a lot to unpack about putting boundaries and accountabilities in it's not easy because it's because because when it's the right time there isn't a time it's an evolution and you you get to a point where it's just super painful not to do it and 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 everybody's stressed out and everybody's getting burnout and yeah i've i've got my own kind of theories about burnout but um the yeah it's incredibly important as you scale amazing thank you very much go for it Um, yeah, of course, of course, but I don't think it's got much to do with physical, a physical thing. I think it may be manifest as physical, but I think it's nearly all emotional. Um, and so why, what's going on there? What, why are you not happy? What are you struggling? What are these things that keep coming up again and again and again? You're incredibly frustrated and you're blocked. And then you go, oh, I'm just exhausted. So the physical manifestation is the symptom, but it's not the cause in my, in my view. Most of the time. Cool. Mate, thank you so much. One more round of applause, please. Charles Palmer, everybody. Thank you. This is the Cat Business Talks podcast. Produced by H2 Productions.